Welcome to the Irish Times Book Club podcast. My name is Martin Doyle, books editor of the Irish Times. Each month we select a book and explore it in a series of articles by the author, their editor, academics and fellow writers. The month culminates with an interview with the author, which is usually recorded at the Irish Writers' Centre in Dublin's Parnell Square. This month, we've been reading Nothing on Earth by Conor O'Callaghan, a kind of ghost story set on an Irish ghost estate. You're about to hear Conor discuss his work with Eileen Battersby, literary correspondent of the Irish Times. Before we start, however, I'd like to put a date in your diary. Next month's book will be Red Dirt by Elizabeth Reapy who will be talking to Laura Slattery at the Irish Writers' Centre on Thursday, May the 25th at 7.30pm. We'd love to see you there. So here is Eileen Battersby talking to author Conor O'Callaghan. Thank you. Thank you. It's... um it's wonderful that you're here to celebrate Conor O'Callaghan's wonderful, wonderful novel. Um, it's stop me if I'm gushing. It's a remarkable book. I am absolutely amazed by it. It makes me think that, um, and a lot of there's probably writers here, aspiring writers, and it looks like it's official that if you want to write a very fine novel, it helps if you're a very good poet. I just thought I'd say that. <laughs> because the exactness of the writing is quite extraordinary. Um, it's so precise. And um, it's interesting for, for a poet whose um, work, the four volumes that you published to date, are very much, um, you catch moments. You kind of look at incidents or moments, reflections, sensations, and you catch them in time. You actually explain them. There's almost a, a scientific um, methodology to the poetry. That's not to diminish the emotion, but there's the, the clarity is almost scientific. And then to see this um, exactness, precision, brought into uh, a prose work that um, of the many strengths, probably the most fascinating element is your total mastery of the greatest quality a novelist could hope for, and that's ambivalence. And the ambivalence makes this shimmer with menace, it's undercut by some humour and empathy. Hmm. Um, thank you. Your good opinion means a lot to me, as you know. Um, I'm not sure to what extent poetry feeds into writing fiction. Um, the poems that I have written are quite narrative in places. Yes, they do isolate moments. And I suppose that did feed in on some level to the way the the novel got structured. Um, but there is, I think, a large narrative element in the poems as well. Um, but I did have a very definite sense when I was writing the book, just to be honest, I had a very definite sense writing the book that I didn't want to write a poet's <laughs> novel. I wanted to write something that would have, yes, the attention to language, the attention to imagery, <laughs> but also that mm. would have a story, mm-hmm. that it wouldn't be this kind of flaky, ethereal... I don't know about you, Eileen, but when I see a poet's novel written on the back of a novel, I think, oh, God, mm. um, I'm going to stay a million miles away from that. And I didn't really want my book to be that. Um, yes, I've written four books of poems, but I think, to be honest, I always had a very strong sense 
that I didn't necessarily articulate too frequently that I was going to write a novel at some point. Um, initially, I suppose, as a very young man, I had a young man's arrogance about the hierarchy of literary forms. I thought, you know, poetry was very much at the top of the pile. I started writing a novel. I thought to myself, I have met some novelists. How hard can it be? Um, I'm joking, of course. Um, and I found myself into it thinking, God, this is really hard. This is actually really, really difficult. Um, so I suppose coming from the world of poetry, coming from that miniaturist attention to language that poetry engenders, and coming with the arrogance of poets towards narrative fiction, um, I was surprised at how extraordinarily difficult the form is architecturally. Um, and I did feel when I was writing the novel as if I was kind of like this, doing this magician's act of spinning plates mm. and having loads of different plates spinning at once. Mm. And I could hear lots of crashing in, in different directions. Um, so yeah, having come from the world of poetry, and having written a novel now, I have nothing but respect for novelists, and I have nothing but respect, even for people, I mean, the great novelists, sure, but even people who won't write fair to middling novels. Mm -hmm. I mean, the architectural achievement of doing that is really quite something mm -hmm. and quite worthy of respect. Um, I suppose the other thing that I'll say is, I think, to be honest, as an Irish poet, when you publish work that isn't poetry, there is a degree of suspicion with which one is met. I'm trying to phrase this delicately. Um, it doesn't seem to be an issue within, you know, American writing, within British writing. It seems possible to be a poet and to write novels, to write plays, to write screenplays, and to do lots of other things. There is the sense within Irish writing, within Irish poetry, that if you migrate to another art form, that you are squandering your birthright. Um, it's bullshit, really, but, you know, it's the kind of thing that one, one grapples with on a daily basis. Go on. That's just very interesting. Um, this is an Irish novel in the sense that it resonates with Ireland. It's a recognisable Ireland, and yet it's not. I think uh, that's one thing that should be looked at when we see about ghost estates and you kind of think, oh yeah, well this is the Ireland of uh, crash, post-crash Ireland. But it's also very much like it's a Ballard landscape. Mm. Um, mm. It's, this, I feel that this is where the dystopian novel has ended up because we, we had science fiction and then we had dystopian novels and now we have this because this is where we are now. And this is um, the, the kind of um, people disappear. Mm. Uh, and I suppose um, one of the most obvious comparisons, and it's very much a comparison that we'll be, we'll be looking at quite soon, um, if things go the way they may well go with the uh, Man Booker International, um, the dark horse from the long list was Fever Dream by um, Sammy Atten, so, so, uh, Swiblin, right? And I did pick her as, as the dark horse, and she's on the short list. 
And the obvious comparison is your book, hmm. because both of you are doing very, very interesting things with, with this wonderful element called ambivalence. And I put it to you that you have probably done it more successfully. I think this is really a screenplay. That. I think that sounds good to me. <laughs> I, is, I, I'm not going to disagree with you in that. Sorry, it was the other this thing. This is a screenplay. This is a wonderful screenplay in the making. You, you were the first person that brought in the, the, uh, another key word here was architecture, the architecture of narrative structure. Um, and another... A possible um, element that would be brought into this is comparison with with um, Henry James, the turn of the screw. Now, interestingly, as a Jamesian, I'm very devoted to Henry James, and it was he that spoke about the architecture of the novel, oh, narrative structure. Oh, Something the most oh. obvious one is the uh, the narrative of the Portrait of a Lady, which is built like a house, mm. as as we know. But and yet, uh, there you can see the discipline of the structure. In your case. The ease is quite astonishing. You've, it's a very literary novel. You may say it's not, I mean, yeah, a poet's novel does immediately conjure up golden leaves in the gutter, a huge amount of lush description and uh, pathos and pain. But this is different. I mean, the, the, the best of poetry has novel. the exactness. It's very literary novel. Even to the ease when the, um, the wonderful character, Slattery, who's a developer, will come to him. He's fantastic. <laughs> He's, and uh, he is uh, one of the great scenes in this book is a supper party like none of us have been to. <laughs> um, but... Um, it, it's um, when Slattery gets off his quad. He's um, the fear is that he might immediately disintegrate, and automatically you're thinking of Tiernan Og, mm. and what happens mm. when you know. Mm. I mean, you kind of like, wow. So the literary the literary references are rife, but at no stage does it look like you're that you're actually um, or heavily influenced by anybody, but by your own imagination. Um, another novel that's very important to to see in relation to this is this classic novel from 1955 by the great Mexican writer Juan Ruffalo. Pedro Parma. Now, if you've read that, you have an idea of the menace and atmosphere that's built up with this book. But the total, it's the ease. Above all the things in the book, it's the ease of this. Well, I mean, I yeah. would have to be absolutely mm-hmm. honest and say, if the ease is there, then I'm absolutely mm-hmm. delighted. One doesn't want mm-hmm. the reader to experience mm-hmm. the torture that the writer experiences it's in well writing concealed. the book. <laughs> but yeah. um, the ease mm-hmm. would be, if mm-hmm. indeed it's an ease, the ease is very much a learned thing yeah i mean i've studied the turn of the screw mm-hmm. i've studied the aspirin mm-hmm. papers mm-hmm. really very closely um i think the james the henry james thing i mean do, I'm go, what am i really going to compare myself to henry james yeah what the hell i'll give it a go um no i suppose the thing that i've learned from henry james is especially in the process of trying to write something that gravitates towards the gothic mm-hmm. I suppose what the turn of the screw told me was that the gothic, the horror, exists within the language and not within the plot. Mm. It's not actually in what the characters do and say to one another. It's in this sort of delicious, ambivalent nuance that exists between the words Mm. and between the phrases, the shadows that exist. There's this marvellous passage in the turn of the screw where the governess and the housekeeper are talking about Miles, and they have sort of muse over the, the meaning of the word contaminated. Do you remember this yeah, passage? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and it's a passage like that that teaches you this absolutely core principle, I think, about writing some version of the literary Gothic, is that the horror, the fear of the horror, exists in the language mm. rather than in the plot. Yeah. The dystopian thing is really interesting. I mean, I've been thinking to myself, mm. having written another novel, I definitely intend to write more novels. Mm. 
I've set myself the challenge of trying to write a love story. After that, I was thinking to myself, I'm going to try and write a dystopian novel because I actually love those dystopian novels. I love 1984. I love High Rise and Concrete Island and those. I think they're fantastic books. Um, But having thought that, I did think to myself, but maybe you've already done that. Maybe the book that you've already written is far more informed by that dystopian tradition yeah, how, than how you actually realised. I didn't sit down to write a literary book. That's the other thing I wanted to say. Yeah. I mean, I think Henry James spent his whole life thinking that he was going to write potboilers that would make a huge amount of money, which is madness when you actually read the books. On some level, I think I thought I was doing the same. Um, so if it is a very literary novel, then I suppose... That's part of who I am and what I aspire to, but I didn't sort of go about intending to write. But the fact that it it, it, um, triumphs through its atmosphere, you haven't used any special effects. Um, In Fever Dream, for instance, there's the poisoning, uh, and the poisoning is, um, we know the environment is at risk, the world is at risk. animals are dropping like flies the boy has strange spots to save his soul he his body is uh, and soul are separated mm. you haven't had you don't need any of that you have a hall of mirrors but you don't have any grotesque special effects not really mm. and there's a wonderful moment when um poor poor, poor paul paul who's a central character in it i, I think i presume people here have read the book but for those of you who haven't very loosely the characterization is is very very impressive um, you have this this beleaguered guy shows up and a ghost in a, in, in a, in a ghost estate with his his um, partner and her sister the sister goes everywhere okay and they have this little girl little girl a fascinating character Cassandra figure in Antigone she's a classical figure and she's set apart because she um, she's grown up in Germany and um, her language she's battling through two layers of language and that makes her interesting she is set apart she's the witness in ways um, she's the sacrificial lamb she's the point of interest um, she is innocence almost not quite tarnished because her innocence is the thing that's swaying um, over the um, narrator who is um, maybe reliable he could be crazy he could be a hell of a liar he could be all of those things, but he's kind of sympathetic too, because maybe he's being framed or maybe he's not. Very daring in the culture that we currently live in to decide to bring in kind of the guy who's really, who really has to, you say one thing, after a certain age, a man has to prove his, he's yeah. trustworthy. This poor guy, not only as a man after a certain age having to prove his trustworthy, he's also a priest. Not an easy I'm thing to be nowadays. I was thinking to myself as you were yeah. saying, are we yeah. really going to use the P word? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose we might as well say. I mean, Very difficult is, for The novel him, is yeah. narrated by mm. somebody who it gradually mm. becomes apparent is mm. a mm. priest. That was quite a late decision in mm. the completion of the story. Mm. Um, the story was definitely gravitating mm. towards the situation where the final remaining member of this family, this 12-year-old girl... Mm. Um, would spend two nights with a man in late middle age in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Given the setting, Mm. given the tradition that the book is coming out of, Mm. there was this point where I started saying to myself, are you really going to make this guy a priest? Mm. Are you really going to do this? Stick another Irish priest in an Irish novel? Mm. Dear, oh dear, oh dear, does anybody really want that? Um, Because priests are seriously corny in Irish fiction. But there was something about the sort of element of presupposed guilt Mm. that seemed very interesting. 
about yeah. a priest than somebody who's 70 years old and wears a dog collar. I mean, these guys are not stupid. They must walk around knowing that people look at them with a degree of suspicion. Well, but even the, the powerful kind of... Like, he's aware of his dilemma. The potential... Um, what's happened? Nothing. Does it matter? You, nothing has to happen. And there's still gossip, abuse, insult, innuendo all over the place. It made me think there's a great moment in the, the um, Irish movie Calvary in which Brennan uh, Gleeson Payne, another of these beleaguered characters called Catholic Priests, is walking down the road and a little girl is distressed and he goes to kind of ease the child. The father comes zooming up the road, the, the father obviously a Dublin Ford type in a flashy car, and he looks at them like this with this complete kind of hostility. And, you, and then for a moment, it's only with 30 seconds on the screen, but you kind of see this guy who has, no matter what, this is, this is the, the, you know, this moment that, that, that no matter what you do, you cannot be, you have lost the innocence. Right. Isn't that the moment where he screams at the Brendan Gleeson character, stay away from my child, stay away from my child? Yeah, I mean, what is really interesting, I suppose, about the figure of the priest is the very thing that makes the figure of the priest the cliché. It is this element of presupposed guilt. If you live in that vocation, you must know, travelling around, that in the world that we live in in the early 21st century, that everybody views you with a degree of suspicion. And even if you've done nothing that merits that suspicion. Yeah, and the um, fact that we know that he knows what's going on, but he can't admit to it. He's actually happened upon these people at the house. He's seen the, the sister and the little girl mm, sunbathing, mm. and he's transfixed by looking at the female flesh because there is this moment, kind of, that the, 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 that the period of the moment the girl is 12. Mm. Uh, you know, it's very, very subtle. Like, you're entering dangerous areas, but as I say, without... Without any avoiding the usual the usual suspects, uh, uh, the cliches, none of that's in it. And as I say, that moment, that pivotal moment when Paul looks into the deserted house and he sees a madman, a clown, and it's actually his own reflection in the mirror in the hall. But it's mm-hmm. when he, he sees this, the wild eyes, and you kind of think of every shocking, hor- horrific painting yeah. ever, that's ever been created. And it's his own fear is magnified, seen in his own face. But a lot of those, again, just to come yeah. back to the idea of cliche, I'm very mm. interested, the mm. cliche of the priest, but also, you know, anybody who knows gothic movies yeah. and stuff, we've all seen these movies, person in darkness goes up against a pane of glass and this mm. face suddenly appears up against them. Mm-hmm. There is this mm. this sort of classic image out of the gothic tradition that I was definitely playing with. I was thinking of these these cliches and I thought what's interesting about the cliches is that there is always this really powerful image at the core of the cliche that if we mine the cliche back we find this really powerful redolent cultural image that is makes it worth sort of travelling back into the cliche to try and... What is it about, speaking about cliches, what is it about heat? How come heat is automatically sinister, where it can be, you know, 20 degrees, you know, below, you know, that's zero, borrowed, and I that's suppose. okay, it's okay to be freezing, but uh, evil, crimes, kind of lust, all kinds of terrible things, menace lurks in the, in the heat, and I'm just thinking, well, this is, again, they're, they're, they're struggling with the heat, and this is in Argentina, your guys are, your characters are astonished by the heat, they're, they're experiencing an Irish uh, uh, heat wave, everybody's slightly crazy as a result of this, but it's just the idea that it's so, you know, would this narrative have been possible without the layer of dust. He I thought what was interesting yeah, is that, yeah. yes, the, yeah. the element of heat mm-hmm. does contribute to this definite sense of the uncanny. Mm-hmm. Um, summers of this nature are unheard of in an Irish experience. So it sounds kind of slightly unrealistic. Mm-hmm. It sounds so unrealistic as to be almost sinister. Mm-hmm. I suppose there were literary... Mm-hmm. Um, 
precursors to this that use the heat as a sort of sentence to mm-hmm. I mean a book like Kutzi's Waiting for the Barbarians yeah. for example mm-hmm. which I you know was an absolutely seminal book for me I think it's a magnificent book I also like something like Ian McEwan's early novel The Cement Garden that uses the yeah. heat to I suspect it it's is the opening the, bit of atonement the, uses the heat yeah exactly the, the summer of 1976 yeah. I think mm-hmm. it is in The Cement Garden yeah. so that the heat does summer acquire, 33 the acquire this kind of really sort mm-hmm. of uncanny sense mm-hmm. to it that it contributes to this sense of unease, mm. to this sense of displacement, to this yeah. sense of fear, I think, these, among um, the characters. These uh, damaged, uh, ghost-like uh, wraiths, and they're, um, the, the, the Odyssey, and what is the Odyssey? The Odyssey is actually getting from the, from the ghost estate, where there's no water, to the local grocery store to get plastic bottles of water, and to bring them back in these trolleys that are consistently abandoned. You've got all these... And that adds to the Ballard-type landscape of all these abandoned grocery... It is, I mean, I completely agree. It is quite dystopian. I've kind of, I mean, I'm not being flippant about Mm. it. I've been seriously thinking to myself, Mm. I wonder, is it possible? In the same Mm. way that I thought to myself, is it possible to write an authentic Irish ghost story? Mm. I've been thinking to myself Mm. very recently, I wonder, is it possible to write an an authentic Mm. dystopian novel? Mm. How important is the Irish Gothic to you? Um, yeah, quite important. Yeah, I mean, I, that stuff of the 19th century, like, I remember as a young boy being taken to the site of Wild Goose Lodge, William Carton's, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah. and being terribly yeah. struck by the story, and I have it on my shelves in the flat here in Dublin. Yeah. Um, people like Sheridan Le yeah, Fanu. Yeah. I actually really love Dracula as yeah. well. It's almost unfashionable to say, but I, I mean, as a novel... Yeah. I mean, we're all so used to it, but as a novel, it's a pretty good gothic novel, you know, and I really kind of like that. So I suppose I was trying to write something that would be, without being too self-conscious about it, that would be to some extent an extension Mm. of that tradition. Mm. Um, But I do think there is something about the novel that I have finished that that has a kind of dystopian quality to it. Mm. And I do like those novels. I like the ballad and I like, you know, and I had been thinking about it, but part of me thinks I've actually done it. Yeah. Already. Yeah, but also I think another thing that kind of I found very striking thinking of something Padre Palmer, where, where you're, you're kind of wondering, kind of like, what's going on? It's the living dead. Your characters. I mean, it's like you could say it's it's almost like the it's um, and then there were none, you know. And then there were none uh, crossed with um, the Farewell Symphony. Mm. Um, not just the way Edmund White used the title, but the actual piece of music, the mm. the symphony itself, the way they they just and then and I was thinking, well, if you're looking at um, contemporary Latin American writing where I, I place this novel an Irish novel an, a fine novel an Irish novel an international novel it certainly is sitting there and I was in ways that that novel for all the Irishness of it it could easily have been written by a, a writer from the Balkans hmm. it could easily have been written by a South American writer and I think that's fascinating that idea oh, I did kind of purposely mm-hmm. make mm-hmm. no very clear yeah. Irish points of reference I mean yeah, just the turns of phrases which baffle the young girl They're to very, me yeah, yeah. The novel, to be honest, mm-hmm. the novel is set in Dundalk. Mm-hmm. That's the dystopian landscape of the novel. The novel is, in fact, Dundalk. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just part of my imagination. I grew up in Dundalk and, you know, mm-hmm. I still dream about Dundalk. I haven't lived there for years, but I still dream about there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very much part of my imaginative framework. Mm-hmm. The fact that when I was writing this, I was visualising some of the streets of the hinterland of Dundalk is neither here nor there. I did purposely, deliberately choose not to sort of reference place names, mm. not to reference Irish mm. place names, and to try and make the names as neutral as possible, so that 
the novel and its points of reference wouldn't be absolutely mired within a specific Irish context. I was thinking about the um, the fact that I, I, okay, you're, you're born in Newry, you, you um, but you're like a Dundalk person. Um, okay. From Dundalk. A Dundalk person, yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, 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 don't, don't, don't do that. I don't, everybody, everybody thinks they can do a Dundalk accent. No, I've had this I, out with Declan Me already. No, everybody, I wasn't doing a Dundalk everybody. accent. I wasn't, but I, I know, I yeah, know Nobody Dundalk can do a Dundalk yeah. accent, probably. No, yeah. Okay, well, I, I know the Drogheda sounded pretty well, or Drogheda, as we called it. It was the first town in Ireland <laughs> I was ever in was Drogheda. To, to see the, 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 the saint's head. Yeah, also oh, Oliver Plunkett. Yeah. yeah, our father, we, we, we were doing stuff in England and then he was supposed to buy a ranch here. And so we came over, um, thought it would be cool to drive around. So we, we got the, the ferry for, to, um, from Fishguard to Rosslair. And he drove the car. He took you to see Oliver Plunkett's head. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> it's a good day. <laughs> so I'm really into the Gothic, okay? Mm. This, is, this is why I got interested interest in the Gothic. I drove into, um, drove into a ditch in Fishguard, got hauled out, <laughs> yeah, by a guy with three horses, got hauled out of, of, of the ditch, got on the ferry, came up to Rosslare, drove straight to Drada, and we look at this, this poor man's head. <laughs> and my father's sitting there and saying, it's like something you'd see in Alabama. You know? And we just back and forth. Well, that was Drahida. So I mean, think I know. I Those think of you haven't been to see the, the, yeah. the head it's of charred, Saint Oliver Plunkett, you yeah. should go and see it. It's yeah. quite yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. But, but anyhow, but, but I was just thinking that. But still, technically speaking, without being pedantic here, um, you're from the. That's the border border area. Yeah, and the border was, features quite a lot in yeah, the Yeah, and I was thinking, yeah, and the border and the idea again, the Argentinian writers, and you're kind of reading this, and you're thinking of you know life and death, death and life. You're thinking of the disappeared. Mm. And I kind of thought that, you know, there was a way, mm. I mean, it's very hard not to read your book thinking of Latin American, Latin American writers and the idea of the disappeared mm. and the way these people take, take their, their leaves. And as I say, there's no gory special effects, but it, that adds to that. It, it I says, think, no, I think, I mean, it's, it sounds, mm -hmm. I think there's definitely mm. real truth in that. When mm. I grew up, mm. Dundalk was a huge point, point of, focal point of mm. the Troubles. Mm. We all grew up... Mm. Um, being surrounded by these narratives and they were very close to us. I lived in Carlingford indeed oh, right. in the mid-90s when the searches were going on for Jean McConville's body yeah, yeah. about two miles from my home yeah. and this kind of search for the disappeared. I'd be lying to you yeah. Eileen if yeah. I said that I had that explicitly in my head when I went to write nothing. Oh, wow, yeah. But um, yeah, I couldn't take it out of my mind. I do mind honestly believe that yeah. these things kind of, mm. you know, you carry this sort of imaginative information yeah. forward. Yeah, it makes sense. And that these things kind of saturate themselves yeah. into, you know, that kind of imaginative framework. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. The stuff about characters disappearing, I think, is really interesting. Yeah, the, I just thought that to disappear, like the same with the, with, the, with the Latin American writers, particularly Argentinian. And, you know, speaking about this book of various people over the last while, I keep saying, well, you should be this Irish guy. This Irish guy's book is very interesting on this. Hmm. So it, it's, I just kind of thought the interesting combination. And of course, I mean, reading your book uh, reminded me very much of the first time I'd read uh, Neil Jordan, Dream of the Beast. Hmm. And the same thing again, he's got this heat, tangle, claustrophobia, inertia people dragging themselves around the place you kind of think gosh Irish people get really upset at the sunshines <laughs> you, know? I mean, you know I mean we've had the stuff that we're like why would you get excited it's only 60 degrees outside that's not even warm you know but I mean th this idea of the languor and the languid and th there's always kind of 
you know, the idea of the notion of, of sin, sin hovering. But I just kind of thought of that, uh, the way it, it does, there are these, um, almost an echo of Neil Jordan. I think it's quite interesting um, thinking of the, that for a story that's very much a story, mm. a story, it's a mystery story, it is a thriller, um, we've got this, yet again, your guy, your, your poor priest joins the ranks of the great, unreliable um, narrators, except you kind of think, well, this guy's a pretty good liar, you know? But I mean, he's kind of like I a moral figure. Is he a liar? Is he, a liar? Or is he just mad? Is he crazy? I mean, I kind of, I've good? started the novel yeah. writing yeah. it from a perspective yeah. of this man recalling mm. something, or a story mm. in which he was implicated. Mm. I absolutely started mm. The story and narr- narration from the point of view of innocence. Mm-hmm. I was convinced by mm-hmm. the narrator's innocence. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely sold on the idea mm-hmm. of writing a story mm-hmm. from somebody who had found themselves trapped within the force field Framed. of the story yeah. mm-hmm. and they couldn't get out of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is this kind of delicious process, the logic of the supplement, whereby mm-hmm. the more we actually protest, innocence the more we protest that something is true well, the, more the he repetition releases, of yeah. protest yeah. actually diminishes our sense of yeah. innocence yeah. and diminishes our sense of truth so I suppose I was deliberately playing with that mm-hmm. I wanted to write a book from the point of view of innocence but even as I was writing the book I was thinking to myself I'm not sure how innocent this guy actually is Seems, but I was also yeah. kind of. It know. seems like his his plight is circumstantial. She arrives at the door. You you kind of feel. But I I suppose another again kind of straining or pushing the literary. But it's very literary. There's so many allusions in it. But they're also subtly done. Um, you really think of the man in the iron mask. And you kind mm. of think, gosh, here's here's a novel that someplace in Ireland. It's obviously contemporary. Um, there's ghost estates, and and here we're thinking of 19th century. Mm. French classic and mm. the idea of the man in the iron mask. I mean, this guy has been this guy has been uh, kind of contained by his own knowledge. Mm. Like, I mean, he knows more about this. He, I know about that family. I wanted you know, to play I, the with way he says, I know I about the family. To, yeah, definitely yeah, to yeah. play with the idea mm. of this, mm. what Rob Greer calls the the absent narrator. Yeah. You know, that there is this, it's not a simple mm. omniscient third person mm. narration, that it is. Mm narrated apparently a third person but it has a personality and somewhere in the background that personality mm-hmm. is somebody who is actually implicated mm-hmm. yeah. in the story. Could you um, speak about the idea of um, narrative and information? Mm. How, how you handle the two together? Well there's very little information given in the thing. It does you know. out though. I developed yeah. this mm-hmm. idea in my head writing the novel that the, rightly or wrongly, I developed this idea in my head that the novel would be, or the narrator, or the reader rather, would be like a guest in a house. That if you stay in a house with a family for a month or two months or three months over a hot summer, gradually, very, very gradually, information becomes apparent to you. You know, if you go to somebody's house and stay with them for three months, nobody at any point in the way that an omniscient narrator would stands in the middle of the kitchen and says, just press pause, everybody. You need to know that this guy doesn't get along with that guy. They have some deep, dark history together. Um, And I don't like, I mean, nobody likes that kind of expositional information dump that a lot of novels engage in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted the narrative simply to happen mm-hmm. and almost tell the reader mm-hmm. nothing and allow the reader to gradually 
piece some of the sort of dynamics, the family dynamics together. Well, and one of the most um, striking there is uh, Paul's ambivalent or ambiguous attitude towards his his partner's sister, Helen's sister. And you kind of think there's kind of a sexual tension there and that he seems to ask about her at the very moment he's been most intimate with his wife and you kind of think, well, this is an interesting thing. Automatically, the police officer, what's your relationship with your with your sister's husband, automatically the suspicion is there. So that's, you know, very real. But this kind of this, when these family relations are so intense in the book, which they are, and these people, uh, Paul is this tremendous character who goes off to work in a computer factory, doesn't really want to do it. And then um, the other girl, the sister-in-law, kind of uh, Martina, who's working there too, and then she takes redundancy, and then he eventually loses his job, and there's a kind of ceremonial moment that's almost like, it's almost religious when he comes back and he burns the suit Mm. that he wears to work, and the black snakes are ribboning up. It's a wonderful image. There's so many rich images in the book, but the idea of this, 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 this burning kind of Mm. goes on and also because we have these tight family family connections oppressively so um, the two girls are glued together because they've left, lost their parents right mm. but, um, and but that, I, mean, I think the business yeah. of information mm. um, I noticed for example you've got Joseph Conrad Heart of Darkness there mm. Conrad had this mm. marvellous idea that the writer should mm. know something about their protagonist mm-hmm. that is never actually revealed in the novel mm-hmm. And I think, you know, mm. that's a really, really good idea, yeah. you know, in terms of mm. the psychological mm. development of characters, mm. to have characters <coughs> in which you know something about this person that informs every description of that person, mm. but doesn't actually enter the narrative, mm. is, you know, I mean, when I read Conrad's idea of that, I mean, mm. I thought it was, it was very formative yeah, for yeah. me. So I did kind of do a lot of work around this idea of family dynamics and stuff, mm. and then just try and work it in such a way that the reader is like a guest in the house. Yeah. You just arrive yeah. in the house, you sit down at the table, but nobody at any point presses pause and goes into this long exposition. Yeah, that's why I thought that Marlowe deserved his, his some representation here this evening, which is why he's here. But... I did, in, I mean, in, in the middle I, of all this, no, but in the middle of all this, another thing that's very significant and quite poignant because it is moving. It's very funny. There's a lot of very, very, very I'm glad funny. to hear you say that, There's actually. an inspired, one of the greatest pieces of comic writing, of Irish comic writing, of comic or any comic writing, the supper scene, which features a gas mask. This has to be, this has to be. I'm hoping that you can read that if you have time. It's wonderful. But um, in the show house, and Helen is looking to create a home out of a show house. So that's kind of poignant, really. And yet she's somebody that's constantly leaving things around the place. She's constantly letting, letting go of things. And yet she has these bits and pieces of furniture that are there in the show house for the, the appalling kind of developer Flood, who's another great comic character, straight out of... Um, he could have uh, doubled very well. And I know we have an extra here, a former extra from Father Ted, but here's Flood could easily have been, done his bit in an episode from Father Ted, the, the, this nasty developer. It's very, very funny. But there's, there's a picture of an older couple and nobody knows, knows who they are, but, but Helen gives them a name. They're George and Georgina, and they're just there. Mm. They're part of... The, and they, suddenly they become... So somebody, when he looks and he sees the couple, they, the automatic assumption is that this is the parents of, of the girls, but it's not. So I think that this kind of... The sort of picture that comes... An impersonal picture that comes in a frame that you can buy in a store, and, you know, there's, the frame has a picture of total strangers, but mm. suddenly these strangers acquire relevance. Mm. 
completely a bogus relevance to it. In Patrick McGuinness's memoir about half growing up in, in Belgium, other people's yeah, countries, yeah, yeah. there's a beautiful passage where he describes giving mm. his aunt a frame. Do you remember that yeah, passage? Yeah, yeah. He gives the aunt a frame, and in the frame there's this generic picture of this generic, yeah. handsome, poting, tanned couple. Mm. And then after his aunt dies ten years later, he goes in to clear her things from the bedroom, and he finds the frame beside her bed yeah. with the photograph oh, of this generic couple yeah, yeah. still in the frame. Yeah. And he ends up by saying, I gave her a frame, but she received a picture. picture. Yeah. And with um, a story as well. The with a story. Yeah, so yeah. she obviously invested all of this kind yeah. of imaginative and emotional energy into this completely anonymous, largely kind of faceless couple. Mm. Um, yeah, so there is this image of the, the couple that sort of almost mm. becomes part of the family. Um, the one thing I wanted to say about the book too, I suppose, is, and I've said this in the piece for the Irish Times, is the extent to which it is based on some kind of personal experience too. It does seem like a very strange book to be based on, to some extent on actual stuff that I lived through. But the first house myself and my young family bought was in the summer of 1995 in Dundalk on a housing estate that was unfinished. It was a swelteringly hot summer. We moved into the house and the housing estate remained empty for the whole of the summer. Irish builders take extremely long holidays. They disappear from the middle of July and don't they come back until the first week, well, they do in Dundalk anyway. <laughs> they don't come back until the first week of yeah. September. Yeah. So we ended up living in a development that was completely unfinished, surrounded by empty houses but for one elderly couple who lived oh, down right. the road. A lovely, very nice, nothing Her, sinister about Harry them. Harry and Sheila. Well, I mean, yeah, Charlie yeah. and Mina is actually the yeah. name. But no, I mean, but I'm talking Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the, yeah. Um, so, the, you know, it isn't a personal book in the no, sense no. that it's not about me. It's not about my experience. But elements of your experience. But I've watched novelists for years go around saying that it has absolutely nothing to do with me. I never did this. But I think, actually, if we're being honest, so much of our personal experience... I mean, I didn't do or say any of this stuff, but I can almost source every single thing back to something. Yeah, yeah. Do you know? Mm -hmm. Back to some fragment of experience. If it's not my experience, then it's somebody else's experience. Yeah, we moved into a house in 1995. We lived there for a whole summer. It was kind of half empty. There was a big metal barrier. Um, I didn't even have that in my head when I was writing the book. It's only after the book is finished that I kind of look back and think, good Lord, mm. actually in many respects nothing on earth is about that weird summer that we spent. Yeah. It was not a ghost estate, but it was kind of like a ghost estate. And it was, yeah, quite a dystopian experience. Okay, so when the, Even um, down to tiny details in the book, I can sort of... Like, for example, Slattery. You mentioned Slattery. Slattery, come along the Slattery there is rumours that he made his, his fortune out of dog, dog food. food. I actually realise now that that was something to do with the former Taoiseach, Albert Reynolds. Reynolds. Um, yeah. And my wife at the time, Vono, came from the Midlands and there was always this discussion of Albert Reynolds. So in a weird way, looking back at the book, didn't have it in my head at the time, God rest his soul, Albert Reynolds is actually in the middle of this, of this ghost story. But the fact that the um, Slattery, Slattery arrives on his chariot, a quad, right? But it could easily be a horse. Um, he invites them to supper. Slattery is this incredibly territorial person who kind of seems himself as a landowner, but he's not a landowner. He's somebody who sold off his land for 
for, for the, a development that's half built, less than half built development. He invites Paul and uh, the little girl to the supper. And I was hoping that you could read. I'll read a bit of it, yeah, happily. Um, I just want, yeah, I suppose what was irresistible was the idea of having this very 21st century image mm-hmm. of the ghost estate, yeah. the unfinished housing development on land that had been or seems to have been an Anglo-Irish estate. Mm. There was something kind of it's almost like a bit irresistible of, yeah. about the overlap yeah. of, of Could easily be the a different uses of gangs. A Gans. graveyard or yeah. a cemetery. And again tying into the kind of the sensation of Gothic bodies disappeared, layers of lives. It's lived, interesting that you should say yeah. that actually because mm. we did discover after we moved into that house in 1995 that it was built on a graveyard. Yeah. And we had this amazing experience once where my two-year-old son came into the house and came into the kitchen rather and said to myself and Volna who is the small girl at the top of the stairs and we said hmm and she said there's a small girl in a dress at the top of the stairs who is she Mm -hmm. oh we said and I kind of was imagining things so I went up and checked um it definitely wasn't his sister who was still kind of you know I think only about four months old at the time. Mm. Um, But there was something about the experience that was profoundly uncanny. Um, Tommy still actually remembers the experience and remembers seeing this small girl standing at the top of the stairs. Mm. We did get an ordnance survey map, uh, an old historic ordnance survey map, and it was clear that it was built on a graveyard. So there's something not just about the graveyard, but the overlap of the just sort of different usages of the land. Once upon a time, a graveyard has mm. become this unfinished housing development, mm. but also, you know, in the novel, land that was once part of an Anglo-Irish estate. Mm. So in some senses, saturated with mm. the ghosts of the haunting. And slattery I'm is making not myself yeah. sound like a right spiritualist. I'm not actually, I'm kind of, I, I, do I believe in ghosts? I'm not sure I do, to be honest. I certainly don't believe in God. And I'm not sure how possible it is to believe in ghosts if one doesn't believe in God. Well, we but, live in a Georgian house in, in Kildare and like, I believe in ghosts because like seven, seven o'clock on a September evening, early September, I remember um, going down into the old house. The house was 1740. And I remember turning around, feeling really cold and turning around. And um, it was like an ice wall. And there was a little old lady standing there. And uh, yeah, and I mean, I I, I just, like this, just, you know, you think you're going to kind of, hello, speak to me from the other side. You think you're going to do that, but you don't, you kind of run like hell. We're running out of the place and I described the old lady to a farmer down the road and that was the old lady of the house who had died in the house. Good Lord. Yeah, and, and strange things When I say this yeah, to people, I, I mean, it's this. interesting yeah, yeah. you should say this. When I say this to people in like relation we, I didn't to know that. He hadn't told me that before, but like I certainly believe in ghosts. Um, yeah. I do think on some level it's the kind of baggage that we our, yeah. ourselves carry around in the same way that I suppose I was saying to the reader of the book, how much of this is actually in the book and how much of it this is, is you? Yeah. How much of this is actually part of the story that I've written and how much of this is this kind of weird cultural baggage and imagery that you've actually, without you realising it, taken into the story and inserted into the narrative. But it's, like it's re- re- reading a book about people on the run and we're all on the run more or less now, you mm. know, so I think that kind of aspect is, 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 is very true as well. But um, but also the devices, you can you think, isn't it curious that kind of a very modern novel that resonates with all of us, I'm sure, 
I mean, and very much of the moment of the time that we're living in. And yet it has all these kind of, you know, layers of, of the past as well. You're thinking of, and they're almost like they're like this homeless people. I mean, the, the idea of them kind of traipsing off, you know. Well, like, I mean, the Gothic you know, as, a, yeah. as a genre is full of these images and they are mm-hmm. cliches, mm-hmm. you know. And I like the cliches and I did actually, mm-hmm. after a certain point, find myself deliberately inserting those old images mm. into it. At one point, mm. after a swelteringly hot, uncannily hot summer, mm. the narrator and this 12-year-old girl find themselves alone in a house together, and it suddenly starts to lash rain outside. Um, there's something quintessentially gothic about that image mm. of this old man and this child sitting at a fireside and the rain mm. pounding outside mm. that I found absolutely irresistible. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely clearly set into the 21st century, mm. but it does, I think, deliberately hark back to some of those images. The human experience. Yeah. As, as an academic, you work as an academic. I was really... I'm um, an academic. I teach creative writing in the university. Okay, well, come in. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. But at the same time... But when I, when Don't I heard, call me doctor. Okay, well, I, I won't. But when you... Um, when I realised you were in Sheffield, the first thing that crossed my mind, because I'm fairly crass, was Sheffield, that's where Sebastian Go came from. So that kind of impressed me. He's one of my heroes of my youth. And then when you actually told me that you lived on the very road that Sebastian Go trained on, that hugely impressed me. I didn't but, tell you what. The other thing I didn't tell you okay. was that I, it's the same road that the, the Yorkshire Ripper was arrested ah, on. OK. There you go. <laughs> Sebastian Go <laughs> and the Yorkshire Ripper. <laughs> But, but um, you're, the fact that you wrote the book about, about and I'm going to be respectful about Roy Keane, more respectful than I was initially because I understand your feeling for, for, for Roy Keane. But I mean, you wrote this very funny um, sports book that came off looking at sports books and then you ended up writing a very long essay. And from that essay came that book. So, I mean, but, but that is, that, that's a, it's like a nonfiction book, but is there not kind of the, the element of the, is that not where... Conor O'Callaghan, the novelist, was actually born in the writing of yeah, that Yeah, I suppose to yeah. some extent. Um, the, the thing mm. that has been said mm. about my career, mm. a word is eclectic. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when people use the word e- eclectic about writers, there's a, a hidden insult in there somewhere. Yeah. My career has yeah. definitely been eclectic. I've published yeah. four books of poems. Mm. I've published one kind of comic memoir mm. about the whole Saipan saga mm. and Roy Keane. Mm. And I've now turned around and published a dinky little gothic novella. No, the caravan is dinky. Well. Use the word dinky to describe dinky, the caravan. That's a lovely word. Dinky, dinky is lovely. But word. I, I um, found that. But you know, yeah, it's yeah. it's kind of. I mean, it's yeah. an odd portfolio. Nothing on earth is definitely yeah. the closest thing to my heart yeah. in terms of the writing. I'm not going to disavow the book of poems yeah. or the book yeah. about Roy Keane. Yeah. But it was definitely a point in writing where I thought to myself at some point yeah. during the writing of the book. But there's a kind of a passion Just about write the book that you actually yeah. really want yeah. to write, well, as opposed to a book that you think people you write, want yeah. you to write, which the Roy Keane book definitely is. It's funny, it's fine, and I quite like the book. But yeah. Nothing on Earth is much closer to being, for all its strangeness, yeah. all its eccentricities, all its elusiveness... Yeah. You know, I grew up reading people like Samuel Beckett, mm. John Banville, and being absolutely mm. revering those prose stylists and wanting to do something equally strange, equally elusive. So, yeah, so while I'm not inclined to disavow the other stuff, I think of it as... 
I think the it's book the, that's closest yeah. to my heart and probably the best thing I've ever written. Yeah. And I think yeah. partly that is to do with the fact that I'm not really steeped. I mean, I probably take too much baggage to the world of poetry to sort of liberate myself within that art form, to be honest. Whereas I know far less about fiction than I do about poetry. And there is an element of the ignorance of that, the ignorance, the innocence of that, that is in some way liberating and um, enabling. But the passionate um, response to your hero, to Roy Keane, I think uh, great sports writing stands alone, and you know it, it stands alone in its own sense. But it also, so it's it, it, sports inspires great writing. It certainly inspires great journalism. So I think there is something about sport. It has theatre. It has passion. There is passion in your crazy book about Roy Keane. But I think that passion and belief. That kind of emotional intelligence obviously comes into this as well. So, I mean, I wouldn't discount... I'm not discounting it. I'm I'm just sort of saying how pleased I am with the book, with the little novel, to be honest. And it's where I see... I mean, I've been writing Mm. poems at the moment. Mm. I intend Mm. to continue writing poems. But Mm. I intend uh, certainly to write a few more novels as well. I kind of love doing this. It's interesting and I don't feel, I suppose what I was trying Mm. to say in a ham-fisted way is Mm. I don't feel any baggage doing Mm -hmm. it. I don't come to it kind of worried about doing what I think I should do. Mm. Um, It's a very strange little book and I think the other books I write will probably be at least as (laughs) strange. There's an interesting moment, the response, and an unexpected response from from Paul who hovers between bewilderment, exasperation and kind of just let's get through the days, let's let's get through the days. But he says um, when uh, uh, Slattery and the crazy girlfriend Hazel and they describe the ghost estate as Flanders, which is kind of an image that would come readily to Slattery because Slattery has his whole collection of war memorabilia inclu- featuring the gas mask, right? And yet Paul kind of is a bit, he's a bit upset and he's surprised that he's upset that he takes a bit of an offence at the fact of where he lives is being described as Flanders Field. So he's not too crazy about that kind of thing. But then he tries, I'd, I'd like if you could read the bit about putting on the gas mask. This I'm is from the supper party. I'm going to read okay, you know, woman. Yeah, this is a passage, it's kind of a set piece from the Gothic where they yeah. go to the house and he's a, a country squire who is um, living in this sort of, well, it's not a great house, it's a yeah, big house, yeah. it's a big farmhouse. Mm. And, and Paul's surprise is not so grand after all. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me see, it's where am I starting? It's splendor, it's just kind of... Let's get to the gas squad. mask, cut yeah. forward. Paul pleaded... Scrap, uh, where is it? I'll find it, don't you worry. Ketan Hunde, yeah, okay. War was Slattery's thing. War was Slattery's thing. He had dozens of glossy coffee table tomes on it. He had compiled an inventory of names from the surrounding parishes of young chaps, the sons of good families and farm labourers alike, who had all signed up together for the local po- in the local post office and had perished together within weeks. Paul, all right, Hayes, all right. Slattery stood again, though mostly it was hard to tell, and poured more wine for everyone except the girl who had scarcely touched hers. She with two biddy sliding lumps around her plate and occasionally lifting a fork with a 
for a with a morsel on it to her lips. After draining the bottle, Slattery left the room. Paul pleaded with his daughter to eat properly. He didn't really give a damn. She was just trying to fill the air deadened by Slattery's absence. Please, Paul said to her, don't let me down. Eat what you like, sweetie. The more puce with wine the inside of Hazel's mouth got, the more her tongue loosened. Ignore your daddy. In spite of the amnesty, or maybe because of it, the girl shoveled several large forkfuls into her mouth and followed them with wheat, each with a hefty slug of wine. They sat watching her until Slattery returned with a couple of pieces of memorabilia that he had bought at auction. A pair of scissors prized from dead enemy hands, a gas mask the colour of copper. He gave the scissors to the girl, crooked, rusting at the handle, bearing a gothic inscription on the inside of one of its blades that the girl read aloud, her mouth half full, Ketan Hunda. Very impressive, Slattery said, and its meaning. Chained dogs, the girl said. Slattery was adamant that Paul should try on the gas mask. He stood behind Paul and forced the straps off at the back. The inside smelt of old rubber and of sick. Paul raised his glass of wine and, for a joke, tried to take a drink. While the others laughed, Paul swallowed the piece of gristle he had been holding in his cheek all that time and felt his throat coated in its grease. This is delightful. <laughs> oh, there's more. Um, he could hear, but he could hardly see a thing and he couldn't push the gas mask off. Slattery was jabbering on, explaining to the ladies that he had spent a weekend with it on once and wearing it gave you a bird's eye view of what it was like to be actually in a war and facing the enemy. Who was the enemy? Paul tried to remove the gas mask, but the thing felt suctioned to his head. He tried to say, please help me get it off. But he could hear how muffled his voice was by all the tubing, and the others only laughed again. If you say so, Slattery said. Paul, the, gas, the mask's goggles got fogged with his breathing. The straps at the back of his head had no given them. The other three were receding into the mist, slattery prattling on about the craftsmanship, only the girl's expression and Hazel's voice displaying any awareness of what was happening. Paul. Paul stood, tugging at the scraps and growling, please get the fucking thing off me. <laughs> slattery came behind him and said to take slow, even breaths. When he finally yanked off the mask, Paul's beard was dripping sweat, his hair everywhere, and they were staring at him as they might a scuba diver dragged up after a sudden loss of pressure. Cheese and coffee? <laughs> you have been listening to Eileen Battersby, literary correspondent of the Irish Times, discussing Nothing on Earth with its author, Conor O'Callaghan. For more information on the Irish Times Book Club, visit irishtimes.com. Thanks very much for listening.